I need y'all's help this morning. I have a ton to cover in answering the second of two questions that were raised a couple weeks ago. Stephen did a great job last week answering the first of those two questions in detail. He descended into hell. And the second of those questions was, was some form, this is my paraphrasing, of what happens next when we talk about death and what comes after death, both for the righteous and for the unbeliever, what happens next? What does that look like? And what should we expect to happen uh, But when Christ comes again? And I've got a lot I want to talk through from that. In the Heidelberg, it's questions 57 to 59 that talk about this from those two clauses in the uh, Apostles' Creed that it's unpacking. The Westminster Larger Catechism unpacks it in even more detail. And so I'll use those questions for us to work through because I want to make sure that I answer the, the thoughts that prompted the question. But where I need your help is I have a ton to cover. And on a Sunday like this, when I have this much to cover, I start talking really fast and I don't stop to take questions. And the whole point of this is that your questions would be answered. So at some point, if, if there is something that you expected me to speak to or answer and, and we're not hitting on it, just tell me, hey, dummy, this is what we're supposed to be talking about. Uh, don't call me dummy, children. I'll throw donuts. I want to work through the larger catechism. There's a great, and I say this with a little bit of trepidation and hesitation, but Johannes Voss wrote a commentary on the larger catechism. So he takes all the many hundred questions of the larger catechism, because it is in fact large, and he breaks them down to even more questions. So for every one question that the larger catechism asks, he might unpack that through a series of 10 or 12 questions. And it's really, really good. Um, It is not always the most encouraging endeavor. So you've got to be in a pretty good headspace to approach it because Voss has pretty uh, intense views on what God requires of us. And Voss will do a very good job of helping you see the ways that you fall short. He also does a good job of showing you the grace of the Savior, but it can be a pretty intense read. But I want to use his commentary on the larger catechism for this discussion because I think because he had an editor He'll be more concise than I would be just vamping on my own. And I think that's to all of our benefit. So we're talking about uh, Lord's Day 22 in the Heidelberg Catechism. And we're talking our way through the Apostles' Creed. The Catechism is asking questions about each phrase of the Apostles' Creed. And question 57 says, what comfort does the resurrection of the body afford you? Answer. That not only my soul after this life shall immediately be taken up to Christ its head, but also that this my body raised by the power of Christ shall again be united with my soul and made like unto the glorious body of Christ. Question 58. What comfort do you derive from the article of the life everlasting? Answer that since I now feel in my heart the beginning of eternal joy after this life, I shall possess perfect bliss such as I has not seen nor ear heard, neither has entered into the heart of man therein to praise God forever. And then question 59, but what does it profit you now that you believe all this, that I am righteous in Christ before God and an heir to eternal life? In the larger catechism, we're going to unpack many of the phrases concepts that the Heidelberg just used in those questions and answers, and hopefully we'll come out of it with a little bit more uh, well-rounded perspective on what's going to happen. So in the Westminster Larger Catechism, this starts in question 86. I just want to read you this question. The answer is a little bit long, but I think this is a helpful one. What is the communion in glory with Christ which the members of the invisible church enjoy immediately after death. So let's pause there and make sure we understand the question. What is the communion in glory with Christ? So when we say the life everlasting, that we will be with Christ in glory, what is that? And who enjoys it? Well, who enjoys it is the members of the invisible church. What's the difference between the visible and the invisible church? 
one of them is filled with ghosts. One you can see and one you cannot. <laughs> Circle gets the square, everybody. Everybody clap for Jay. All right? One you can see and one you cannot. What's the visible church? Everyone who has professed faith in Christ and been baptized in the name of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Anyone who is a member of the visible church of Christ, are they automatically a member of the invisible church of Christ? No. Well, that sounds mean. How do we know that's true? Well, what does the Bible say about sons of Abraham? If you were uh, born a Jew two centuries before Christ, and you were circumcised, and you were taught the law, what were you definitely a member of? Israel, the visible church. You were in. You had the mark of the covenant. You were a, a participant in the covenant community. You belonged to the people of God. You were a member of the visible church. And every one of them actually trusted in God by faith, just like their father Abraham did, right? No. You read the book of Judges? It's rough. No, no, they didn't. There were plenty who, though they bore the mark of the covenant, they didn't actually believe. They were sons of Abraham by, by genetics, but they were not sons of Abraham by faith. And so they were not members of the invisible church. Well, does that help us figure out what the invisible church is? What's the invisible church? Everyone who actually believes. Now, there's a... Last time I drew a Venn diagram, you guys mocked me for my overlapping circles. So I'm just going to let you visualize your own statistically accurate Venn diagram at this point. Are there people in the visible church, church membership, baptism, who do not belong to the invisible church? They don't actually believe in Christ by faith. Yes. So the circle that is the invisible church, uh, sorry, the circle that is the visible church has some portion of it that does not include invisible people. There are church members who do not actually believe in Christ by faith. Is the opposite true? Are there people who genuinely trust in Christ for salvation and yet do so without the mark of the covenant and without membership in a church? Yes but not very much, right? That's what church history has said for thousands of years. You know, even in the Old Testament, where we talk about there being this huge distinction between Jew and Gentile, there are converts in the Old Testament, aren't there? And they don't just say, hey, really glad you have faith in Yahweh now. You keep doing your thing your way with faith in Yahweh because you're not a Jew and it'll be okay. It'll, it'll be a wash in the end. God will be okay. No, it's you convert to Judaism. Right? You bear the mark of the covenant community and you live within the visible covenant community. So is it possible to be in one and not the other? Absolutely. It's not normally the case that someone trusts in God by faith and says, but I want nothing to do with the covenant community. That's a really difficult thing to reconcile. But it happens all the time that people bear the mark of the covenant and people participate in the visible life of the church, and do not actually have faith. And at some point, something will happen, and they will walk away. Their true allegiance. Well, they're in a part of, a, of the world that doesn't have a church. They've, they've been told, they've been, a missionary has told them, they, they, they know the stuff. They don't have a, there's not a church there to go to. They've been baptized. If there's missionaries there, there is a covenant community there, and they've been baptized and are part of it. The, the case of the person who actually believes in Christ in an unreached people group, like that is a, that is a, it's beyond a rarity. It, it's not, I guess the closest I'd come to saying it's not a thing. It's an objection that gets thrown up in terms of, well, you can't make this an absolute. And I'm not making it absolute, but that's the rarest of all cases. Um, and you know what the big problem is. The big problem is not that. Which, I, which we all can accept. The big problem is the opposite. The big problem is the number of people who think they are walking with God independent of the church. And there are plenty of churches around them. There are plenty of covenant communities that they ought to be willing to unite themselves with. But deep down in their heart, what they say is, I am subject to no one except God. 
And the big problem with that is what God says in the New Testament is the way that you demonstrate that you're subject to God is that you're subject to his church. Oh, but those are fallen, sinful human. Yeah, that's what makes it submission. <laughs> it's not submission to do the thing that the person who is always right tells you to do. That's not submission. Doing the thing that the person tells you to do that you want to do is not submission. Submission is that there are sinful people telling you what to do that are sometimes wrong. And you say, because of the authority, this is my boss at work. I'm going to do it. I submit to that authority. These human elders that make mistakes often, I'm going to submit to that authority. Um, So that's the visible, invisible church distinction. And so what the larger catechism says is the members of the invisible church. Does baptism guarantee this eternal life? No. Baptism, which church do you join at your baptism? The visible church. Is that important? Yes. Is it significant? Yes. It's powerful. God is acting through a sacrament. But you are not in your baptism joining the invisible church. The baptism does not say you are in eternal life, period. The baptism is a promise. If you are in Christ, you are in eternal life, period. It's a powerful promise. It's, 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 it's a mark that's physically placed upon your body as the water covers you. Like, it is a big, big deal that doesn't save you. Visible church, invisible church. All right, here's the answer. 20 minutes later. The communion and glory with Christ, which the members of the invisible church enjoy immediately after death, is that their souls are then made perfect in holiness and received into the highest heavens where they behold the face of God in light and glory, waiting for the full redemption of their bodies, which even in death continue united to Christ and rest in their graves as in their beds till at the last day they be again united to their souls. Whereas the souls of the wicked are at their death cast into hell, where they remain in torments and utter darkness, and their bodies kept in their graves as in their prisons till the resurrection of judgment of the great day. You see why in the commentary he takes that answer and breaks it down into like 12 additional questions to work through. There's a whole bunch in there. So let's talk through some of it. What is the condition of believers in Christ after their death? This is where we started a couple weeks ago. What happens to believers, invisible church members, when they die? The condition of believers is a, after death is a condition of consciousness, memory, holiness, blessedness, and waiting. Waiting for the completion of their redemption by the resurrection of their bodies. The condition of their bodies is a condition of rest until the resurrection. So as Stephen said last week, when a believer dies, two things happen. The body goes into the ground. The body is resting. The body has nothing else to do for a while. It is sleeping a kind of sleep of death. But the spirit, the soul, does not enter into that It goes to a condition of consciousness, memory, holiness, blessedness, and waiting, anticipation for the redemption of, uh, for the resurrection of their body. And when does that happen? Immediately when they die. Immediately when they die, the separation of body and soul takes place. Karen? Yes. Hold on. love this. love this. Uh, I will answer it. And if I don't answer it, ask me again. All right. Um, let's talk about those words. Let's talk about holiness first. What does it mean that our souls immediately after death pass into perfect holiness? What does that mean? We will never again fall short morally. We will never suffer temptation. We will never give in to temptation or fall into any sin. That moral perfection, perfect holiness will belong to us upon our death. 
What is the blessedness? When it says we enter into blessedness immediately, what is that blessedness? Scripture actually tells us this one. That's a feeling. Yeah, you got it. Why the peace? We will behold God. We will actually behold God. So I, I, I imagine it, uh, careful here, imagining things like this. I, I imagine it as a, as a moment of instant illumination where when we behold God, everything we have ever wondered or wanted to know becomes either known or okay. You think about, and we're all wired differently, so maybe you're, you're wired a little differently on this front. But when I think about what gives me angst in this life, what gives me sadness in this life, it's the unknown. It's the lack of understanding. I don't know why about a lot of things. I don't know how something was good. I know it was good because God said it and did it, but I don't know how that was so. And that's when I get angsty. That's what makes me angsty is the things that I don't understand and don't have an answer for. And the blessedness of beholding God is it is all either known or okay in an instant. There's no more of those, those missed connections in our brain that are just waiting on some sort of resolution. They are resolved. Everything that is unresolved in mind and spirit is resolved in that moment because we have behold the glory of God. And it's not like you make some conscious, oh, well, I can settle for not ever having that answered because look, it's God. No, no, no. The beholding of God is what settles it. We, we, we get him in some sense that we don't get him today. And it, it, it releases all of those unresolved things. And that is the answer to the memory question, I think. Um, the reason why they put memory in there is they want to make sure we understand that it's not that we enter into some sort of different existence where we have no recollection of the person that we were in this life or this earth, or that we have no recollection of who God is or why we're there. You know, it, it, it is, we carry the consciousness that we have into that eternal life, and yet we do so where everything is resolved. Where, ev- where there is no temptation, there is no sin, there is no uh, uh, noetic, uh, 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 mind brokenness. Our, our propensity because of the fall that we just misinterpret and misunderstand things and we get things wrong. We don't even reason correctly. Everything is put back in order in our ability to know and to think. And those resolutions make things today that are unfair fathomable to us that they could be understood much less that they could be good and it makes them so Um, that's what it means by memory where is heaven I love the way Voss I mean Voss can be a little bit of a smart aleck so in in several of his answers he says uh, the Bible has no interest in satisfying your curiosity on this matter (laughs) that really is his answer at one place Um, However, what's really important to us and the larger catechism that we understand about heaven is that it is a place. It's a place where God's glory is specially manifested, and it's a place where Jesus Christ himself, in his glorified human nature, now lives. This is where Jesus, the risen Jesus, in his glorified state, is now present. So it's a place, at least in that sense of place, and it is a place that we will go uh, at this time. Is the condition of the souls of believers after their death the highest and most blessed condition they are destined to enjoy? All right, what's that fancy question mean? When we die, we go to heaven, and this question asks, is heaven as good as it gets? When our bodies and our soul are separated, body goes to the ground, soul goes to heaven, is that the most blessedness we'll ever have? And the answer is no. While the condition of the souls of believers after their death is a condition of perfect holiness, still it is not the highest and most blessed condition they are destined to enjoy. The enjoyment of supreme blessedness must wait until the resurrection of the body at the last day. Therefore, the Bible represents the souls of believers in heaven as patiently waiting for the resurrection. So here we're waiting in a sense of... of 
longing for relief. Come, Lord Jesus, right? Get, get us out of this. And by this, I don't just mean all y'all. I mean all me. Get me out of a life where I am still doing the things I don't want to do and not doing the things I want to do. A, a life where I am still at war within myself between the spirit that loves God and the flesh that loves sin. Get me out of this world that is cursed and broken, where work is toil and where the body decays. And so our, our longing right now is, has this negative tent of get me relief, get me out of here. When we die, when we get to heaven, it's glorious. We have that moral perfection. We behold God. All of these things are great. And we will still be longing for something else. We'll be waiting with eager anticipation. We want our bodies back. (laughs) We want the new heavens and the new earth. We want to be what we were originally created to be. Heaven is something less than what we were created for. Heaven in all of its majesty is less than what we were created for. We were created for a sinless world, not for a disembodied life with God. And so we wait for the last day. What will the condition of the bodies of believers be after their death? Well, we said that. They rest in the graves as in their deathbeds, yet are still united to Christ. Well, what does that mean? If our bodies are in the grave, how can they still be united to Christ? I thought this was a really good answer. The question is, what does that mean? It means that Christ still regards the human bodies of his people, even though dead and buried, as something exceedingly precious, because he intends to raise them up again at the last day. Therefore, he does not regard the dead bodies of his people as something worthless to be discarded because of no more use, but as something valuable to be watched over until the resurrection. The body compares the dead body of the Christian to a seed which has been planted and will spring forth to new life at the appointed time. That's contrary to what I think a lot of us grew up thinking or hearing about, which is this idea that the body's the problem and I got to get rid of this old decaying cursed body and I want to be free from it. And, and, you know, our bodies after we die don't matter. You can do whatever you want with them because really what mattered was the soul. That's what God cares about. And scripture is, does not support that. Scripture says God created both of them and loves both of them and has a high purpose in glorifying both of them, and our bodies matter even when they are resting in the grave. Questions about that much? The problem is yes, the problem is sin and curse, not material. Because what you can get into is a very Eastern perspective that material is bad and immaterial is good, and that's not Christian. God made the physical realm, Christ took on human flesh. What does that mean if flesh is by nature corrupt? What does it mean that Christ took on human flesh? Well, that, that math doesn't work. He's corrupt, right? Uh, no, the, the scriptures have a very high view of soul and body. All right, and this is dangerous. And we should share that. We should share that in every way. We should share it during our lives. And we should share it when we contemplate death. dishonoring the body or having no regard for the body that God has given us is not a godly approach to the bodies that we have. Christians can agree to disagree over some practical implications of what does that mean? Whether it's okay to do this thing or that thing with your body. Fine, we can have those discussions, but let's at least all agree that we should honor God with our bodies and honor our bodies because we honor God. Does that make sense? Is a dead body still a temple of the spirit? <laughs> yes, because it's united to Christ. That's a great question. I'm thankful. That. 
found an answer by the spirit. So when the body fully decays uh, for the physical resurrection, mm -hmm. is it just going to kind of be remade with the cells around, or is it not as scientific as I'm? I don't know the how. I mean, it may be as scientific as you're thinking, right? It, it very well could be. He made the first man out of out of the ground. Um, I don't know the how. It doesn't say. Uh, and that's why we, we, and you're not doing this. I'm going off on a rabbit trail now. That's why we don't want to get hung up on the things like, yeah, but what about the people who burn up in a fire? Okay, okay what about them? Well, so then that's, but, but that's an interesting question, right? Is cremation in terms of what can God do with that body is absolutely no different from somebody who burns up in a fire or somebody who's buried at sea. We have no reservation that God can reassemble and raise that body. But should we cremate? That's, a, that's the more interesting question for me than how is God going to fix the cremation? I know that he will because he says he will and he can. But should I? Should it impact my choices around that? That's, those are... You've given this more detailed thought than I have. <laughs> All right, so next, question 87. <laughs> what are we to believe concerning the resurrection? We are to believe, this is 87 of the Westminster Larger Catechism. We are to believe that at the last day there shall be a general resurrection of the dead, both of the just and unjust, when they, when they that are in found... What horrible language. When they that are then found alive shall in a moment be changed, and the selfsame bodies of the dead, which were laid in the grave, being then again united to their souls forever, shall be raised up by the power of Christ. All right, what's going to happen in the resurrection? The same body you had, the one that was in the ground, or the one that was cremated, or the one that was buried at sea, that same body will be reunited with your soul into a now glorified person, the bodies of the just by the spirit of Christ and by virtue of his resurrection as their head. How do we know that our bodies will be raised? The fact that he said should be enough. I agree with Kathy. Should be enough. He gave us one more than that. He did it. He did it. And that's why it's so critical when people say at Easter that we're talking about a spiritual resurrection of Christ. No, we are not. We are talking about a body that came out of that grave and walked into a room and walked down a road and ate dinner at a beach. We are talking about a body. The bodies of the just will be raised in power, spiritual, incorruptible, made like to his glorious body. And the bodies of the wicked shall be raised up in dishonor by him as an offended judge. Everybody gets their body back. We were not made to be disembodied spirits. Righteous or unrighteous, we were not made to be disembodied spirits. This is the biggest problem with the hallmark version of heaven, where when you die, or certainly when children die, what happens to them? They turn into angels. Oh, that's how angels are made. No, it's not. Angels are made because God decides to create an angel. Not because a human dies. We all get our bodies back, righteous and unrighteous. Who just, yes, if you take Stephen's interpretation that after, oh no, no, the answer is yes, no matter what. Now I will explain, given on Stephen's interpretation, which is if you think about life after death, if you think about life after death, the righteous are going to Abraham's bosom, what we call heaven. The unrighteous are going to Hades, a hell-like place that is not, that's their disembodied version as well. That's the, the holding tank for everyone while our bodies await the resurrection. And then we're reunited body and spirit at this day of judgment. Is it more graceful that they get their bodies back or is it greater punishment? I couldn't say if it's better or worse. I would only say that there's no alternative because it's what we were always made to be. Um, it is an interesting question. There are certainly ways where we would think 
yeah, that's worse. Um, but it is what they were made to be. So what do we say then about this, this judgment? What should our attitude be about the day of Christ's coming? Come, Lord Jesus. That should be our attitude about this day. Come, Lord Jesus. And kids, when I was a kid, um, this was a hard doctrine for me to wrap my head around because life was hard, life had challenges, but I knew this life and I knew these challenges and there were a lot of things that I liked here. And I used to think, why would I want to give up all the things that I like here and all the people that I love here so that I can go be an angel playing a harp on a cloud? And then I found out, all right, the angel harp cloud thing, that's not it either. But I still didn't long for heaven. I had things I wanted to do in this life that I hadn't done yet. And it was very difficult to long for heaven. So I would find myself praying things like, oh, Lord Jesus, come back later. Come back after I've had time to do all these other things that I want to accomplish. And even sometimes uh, as adults, we can do some of that. And as parents, we think, oh, I'd really like to experience this with my child as an adult. And, the, and, the, and all I can tell you is uh, you are settling for mud pies instead of a beach vacation with your Savior. It will be, you will lack for nothing. You will miss nothing. Nothing will seem like a compromise. Nothing will seem like a bad trade. You, every single moment of every single day, will experience new and additional blessedness of what it means to be in the presence of God. And I I can't tell you what that looks like, because scripture doesn't tell me. It just tells me over and over and over again that it can't be any other way because of who God is. We will get there in just a second. Yep. Um, will there be more than one resurrection? No. Next question. Uh, and the, remember how I said at the beginning of this class, all these creeds and catechisms are a product of their time. And sort of what are they arguing against? And when you're dealing with Heidelberg and you have these real clashes between Catholicism and Protestantism, you can see that in the writing and sort of how they answer things. Well, when the Westminster Larger Catechism, when Voss's commentary on it was written, when he was writing this book, which is really excellent, it was when, for the first time in the history of the Christian church, a end times view called premillennialism had become the dominant view. For, for thousands of years a thousand plus hundreds years, Christians had not, Christians had understood what we call the confessional view of what's going to happen. There's going to be this one resurrection of the just and the unjust. There's going to be one judgment of the just and the unjust. There's going to be one parting of ways. And that is the day, the day of the Lord. And then reasons complicated class another day this other view comes along that says no you really got to split that up if you want to make sense of some of these other bible passages so there's going to be one resurrection where the righteous people are raised and and they're judged and they're found in favor and then they're taken off so that when the really really bad stuff happens in the world they're not there because god wouldn't leave his people there for trials and tribulations biggest eye roll of all time uh And so we got to get them out of here before that. And so then we have to have a second resurrection at the end of all of that, because we got to do something with either people who were converted during that period of time or with people who are are perishing in their unbelief. And so a whole bunch of the questions and answers in here deal with, that's not what the Bible teaches. This is not what it says. And so this one is, will there be more than one resurrection? No. (laughs) No. Okay, thanks. What should we think of the doctrine that there will be two resurrections? First, a resurrection of the redeemed, and second, a thousand years later, a resurrection of the wicked dead. This teaching forms a part of the premillennial interpretation of Revelation 20. This vision, which was revealed to the Apostle John on the island of Patmos, is unquestionably filled with symbolic features and is therefore somewhat difficult to interpret with certainty. Because of this difficulty of interpretation, there has never been any unanimity in the church, concerning the meaning of this vision. 
This vision should be interpreted instead in accordance with the clear teaching of our Lord in John 5. Rather than start with a theory about Revelation 20 and interpret John 5 to fit that theory, we should take our Lord's clear teaching in John 5, which rules out the idea of two resurrections. Uh, And he goes on. But Jesus teaches us with more clarity than Revelation teaches us. That's just apocalyptic prophecy is very useful. It's very helpful. It's God's word. It's breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, reproof, training, correction, all those things. And it's hard to understand. And so you take Jesus's words about the same topic, which are clearer and easier to understand. And you say, okay, here's my baseline. And however I'm going to interpret Revelation, I need to do it in light of this more clear baseline. Not the other way around. Oh, I find Revelation 20 really fascinating. And I want to come up with a bunch of really detailed explanations for that. And therefore, I have to twist bizarre meetings on Jesus' words to make that fit into my picture. That's not how you interpret anything. You interpret the, the clearer thing first and then use that to provide clarity to the tougher thing. Uh, will the resurrection body, so here's another topic, will the re- resurrection body of the redeemed be the same as the present body or different? What do you think will be the condition of your resurrection body? Same body? Different body? I like it. I like it all. (laughs) Scripture teaches, I I think the answer is yes, both and, right? Same and different. What's what's the same? Well, Scripture teaches uh, that the identity of the body will be the same. I know Noah. I look at Noah now and I say, that's Noah. What will happen with Noah's glorified body? I'll look at it and I'll say, Noah, right? The identity of the body is the same. But what's different? Qualities of the body. (laughs) All the qualities of that body are different because that body is clothed with glory and immortality. The same body that's buried is the body that's raised. Same was true of Jesus. Same body buried, same body raised, but different, clothed with glory and immortality. Sally? Hands here. <laughs> so, it, so it's, it's like when, when um, Jesus is on the road to Emmaus and they didn't recognize it, but they were, they were kind of going, what's going on here, right? Kind of, yes. The only hesitation I have on that one is Jesus seemed to have this remarkable ability when he wanted to, to make people not recognize him. When his goal was not to be recognized, he had the ability to not be recognized. Oh, don't mind him. It's just a gardener, right? I, so, uh, but as soon, uh, just a guy in a bit, right? But as soon as he tells them, this is who I am, they see it. And so there, there's, what you're saying is true. There's enough similarity there that they're, they're, they, they know it when confirmed. I wonder if they would have known it even sooner, except that Jesus is doing something to make himself not be known to them yet. But we don't know. That's total speculation on my part. But we will know one another. We will look at each other and say, I know Sally. And we'll be glad to see one another. Okay. Yes. Well, I think it does bring a question about like age. You know, are you perpetually a child or perpetually an old man? Yeah, Austin, what are you? Are you... <laughs> That's a great question. I don't know, I don't know if Adam and Eve is informative at that point where God sort of creates. Because I think Adam and Eve is informative of like what we might be doing because there's a dominion mandate. In our prime forever? I have no idea. I have no idea. Well, then there's always the thing of like, we say we're going to recognize each other, but what if you met someone later in life, but or you fell out of like contact with someone who you knew from earlier in life? Will your visual appearance shift so that they can kind of notice, oh, that's who I know, even though like... Or will they just have knowledge on a deeper level exactly. than... yeah? Yeah. And, and the hard part, I mean, there's a hundred hard parts in this for us, but <laughs> one hard part in this for us is that we can't fathom aging without decay. Right. Yeah. We think of all of life as this bell curve. There's the age you don't want to be because you want to be an adult. And then there's some theoretical peak. And then there's the age you don't want to be. <laughs> right? That's how we think about aging. 
It's not like that. We'll go on to eternity. We will age because time is real. We, well, it's not Groundhog Day. We're not going to wake up every day and live the same day over and over again. We have work to do. There's lots to be done. And yet none of the things that we associate with the passage of time. My neck hurts, you guys. I, every, I wake up this morning, my neck hurts. And all I can think is, what happened? I used to get out of bed feeling like life is good. And now I get out of bed feeling like I need a heating pad. <laughs> when I was a kid, I didn't know what a heating pad was. None of that. No heating pads in the new heavens and the new earth. There's no need of them, unless you love it, and then I guess you get to have one, but not for pain. I don't know how that works. <laughs> Is it cold in here? Yeah, that's on 72, sorry. Uh, good questions about the body. All right, let me get this last section knocked out. What immediately follows the resurrection? So what happens after that? Raised, bodies united, here we are. We are now re-embodied spirits. How soon after the resurrection of the dead will the judgment take place? Immediately. Uh, and there's plenty of scriptures. John 5 is a good one to go where you get better understanding of that. So it sounds like, if that's true, there's this return of Christ in glory. There's a resurrection. And then it's too late to prepare for anything at that point. Too late. When you see Christ coming on the clouds, whatever that means, when you see Christ coming on the clouds, too late to change your mind. So what does that mean now for how our attitude should be concerning the judgment? What should our attitude be concerning this judgment? Repent early and often. Early and often. Repent early and often. Realizing the certainty of the judgment and our own ignorance of the time, we should make adequate preparation so that when the judgment day comes, we will be ready for it. The person who is not saved should, re- should prepare, first of all, by repenting of sin and believing on Christ as Savior. The Christian should prepare by daily seriousness and faithfulness in the Christian life. He should watch, pray, and be ever ready for the coming of the Lord. Is it possible that this could happen in our lifetime? Yes! What, what do we think of anyone who thinks they know when Christ is coming? I like it. The very, the variety, you have lots of options here for what you want to think about those people. One of the things you should think about them is that they're incorrect. They're mistaken. Uh, didn't Jesus say not even the Son knows? I uh, is it probable? I love it. So it goes through this series of like the, the, the series of questions. All right, the judgment is absolutely certain. Could the judgment happen in our lifetime? It could. We got to be prepared. Could the judgment happen five lifetimes from now? It could. Those people should be prepared. It goes through all this. And then it says, is it probable that the second coming would come to pass during our lifetime? Voss has lost it at this point. The Bible gives you no basis for answering this question with confidence. Stop asking. Many people in the past have thought they could answer this question with confidence. Time has proven them wrong. (laughs) Christ is judged. Now, one other thing. So Christ comes as judge. The judgment comes right after the resurrection. Why is Christ especially qualified to be judge at this judgment? Hmm? Pam gets the sticker because he's both God and man. He's God. He knows all things that ever happened. And because he's man, he has experienced temptation and suffering. And he knows it is possible to do what he is judging people for not doing. He, he, he knows both. He knows all things. And he knows what it is to be man. All right. Very last section. What happens to the wicked and to the righteous at the day of judgment? First, the wicked. 
At the day of judgment, the wicked shall be set on Christ's left hand, and upon clear evidence and full conviction of their own consciences, shall have the fearful but just sentence of condemnation pronounced against them, and thereupon shall be cast out from the favorable presence of God and the glorious fellowship with Christ, his saints, and all his holy angels, into hell to be punished with unspeakable torments of body and soul with the devil and his angels forever. And there's a lot of scripture references for that. Um, Jesus teaches that there's going to be a judicial separation of the righteous and the wicked. Two classes of human beings um, that existed side by side in the present life, but they are to be completely separated by Christ when he acts as judge. That separation will be perfect. It will be infallibly accurate. It will be total and it will be permanent. Remember, Stephen read the text about you go down and you look across and you say, well, can't I just go tell him how bad this is going to be? And no, this separation is permanent. It will never be possible for any connection to take place between the righteous and the wicked. They are completely isolated. Some questions we should ask about this. Um, is God sending them to hell? I mean, if we believe that God, that the only way someone can have faith in Christ is that the Holy Spirit awakes them and draws them. If God doesn't predestine someone to eternal life, Aren't they going to hell because God didn't predestine them to eternal life? That is nearly exactly the answer. Those whom God has passed by and not chosen to eternal life will be condemned, but their condemnation is not on account of God's decrees. It is on account of their own sin. Nobody is going to think this is a bad deal. I know that seems impossible to believe. But even the wicked at the judgment will recognize the justice of Christ's condemnation. Nobody's going to say, like all the things that we would say now. You know, we get pulled over for speeding. We're like, I didn't even see a sign. Oh, I, I didn't know 85 was frowned upon. I didn't, I didn't, I'm a first-time offender. All the excuses we come up with now that we think will be present at the judgment won't be. They won't be. People are not going to make excuses to Christ at the judgment. They are going to hear his just and righteous judgment, and they are going to agree. They're going to agree. Even though they do not have the slightest love for God or thankfulness for any of his mercies, still they will realize in their own consciousness that God has treated them strictly according to justice. God has not been unfair. At the judgment day, the perfect justice of God will be vindicated before the whole creation and all will confess that God is just. Those who have spent their entire lives accusing God of unrighteousness will realize in their own hearts that God is righteous and they themselves are wicked. That's tough. That's tough. But it's how it will be. Next, uh, he, he talks about a couple of alternative positions that people have sometime universalism what is the belief of universalists all human beings without exception will finally be ex uh, saved and enjoy eternal life can universalism be reconciled with the statements of the bible about hell no his answer is no the bible plainly teaches that not all but only part of the human race will be saved and the rest will be eternally lost Matthew 12, Matthew 6, there's lots of text there. All right, what about annihilationists? What's the belief of annihilationists? Oh, that word, <laughs> annihilationists. Y'all familiar with that one? There's punishment of hell for a little while, but not eternally. Eventually, the wicked in hell cease, cease to exist, their personalities having been blotted out, leaving nothing. God is too good to punish any creature eternally. What scripture text proves that this doctrine is false? Matthew 25, 46, where the exact same Greek word is used for the life of the believer and the life of the unbeliever after the judgment. Uh, the blessedness in heaven lasts forever, and therefore the sufferings of hell must last forever too. Is God too good and loving to punish the wicked forever? No. The only way we know of the goodness and love of God is from the Bible. And the same Bible that teaches us that God is love also informs us that our God is a consuming fire. It's wrong to pick and choose among the teaching of the Bible. We must accept what the Bible teaches as a whole or reject it as a whole and accept the consequences. If we accept what the Bible teaches about God's love, we must accept what it teaches about his justice and wrath against sin. 
So then what happens to the believers? This is quick. At the day of judgment, the righteous being caught up in Christ in the clouds shall be set on his right hand and they are openly acknowledged and acquitted shall join with him in the judging of reprobate angels and men and shall be received into heaven where they shall be fully and forever freed from all sin and misery, filled with inconceivable joy, made perfectly holy and happy both in body and soul in the company of innumerable saints and holy angels, but especially in the immediate vision and fruition of God the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit to all eternity. And this is the perfect and full communion which the members of the invisible church shall enjoy with Christ in glory at the resurrection and day of judgment. So again, those two classes of people separated uh, permanently, as Christ says, on his right and his left, and then openly acknowledged and acquitted, being as declared that we are actually righteous because we are in Christ, because we are united with him in righteousness. Um, And then that is perfect blessedness. We can't have it now. We can't have it now because we can't see Christ face to face now. We can't have it now because the world is cursed and we have the effects of the fall. We can't have it now because there's sinfulness that remains even in our own hearts. We can't have it now because we're surrounded by the wicked. There's all kinds of reasons why we can't have supreme blessedness now. And that's why we should be able to say, come Lord Jesus, is our desire for that supreme blessedness should outweigh every other desire that we have. Uh, And then last, where will heaven be? The Bible does not satisfy your curiosity. (laughs) It does teach that heaven is a place, John 14. Questions about that, Jake? What about differential? Can't tell you. Uh, He asked that question because he knows this has been a struggle of mine for years. Uh, I can tell you what the Bible says is true. Uh, The Bible says that all of us, each of us is perfectly righteous in Christ. The Bible tells us that uh, there is no category of disappointment or comparative dissatisfaction in heavens or in the new heavens and the new earth. And the Bible says that the Lord sees all that we've done and that there are, uh, for lack of a better term, there are rewards, there are additional blessings that flow forth from God for the righteousness that we did in this life. That's all I know. I didn't ask because works matter a great deal, a great deal. And, and I hope we're coming out of the period of Christian history where we had to downplay works so much. It'll come back. It's always cyclical. And it was important that we downplay works because whatever happens when humans start to take work seriously is we start to save ourselves by works or think we can. It's inevitable. We have works written on the human hearts and every single time in church history that we get serious about walking in obedience with God, somewhere along the line, we fall off the other side of the horse and say, and that's why God loves me. And that's not right. (laughs) That's not right. But works matter a bunch. So much of the Bible is about walking with God And, and darkness can't dwell with light. You can't walk a crooked path and be with God on his straight path. So if the goal is to be with God, united with Christ, life with God, you better believe that's going to be a life filled with good works. But the moment you take one of those works and you put it in the wrong place or in the wrong order, you've corrupted the whole thing. 